I have not been a fan of the distinction between B2B and B2C for a long time. I realize that there are products that are very specifically sold for B2B versus B2C. But for me now, it's kind of B2E, business to everything, everyone, and every experience. And what has changed dramatically during the last 12 months is all of us have become super consumers in our day lives while balancing our personal and professional experiences. And so now those have bled together even more so than when I was saying this 10 years ago, meaning, you know, you now are working from anywhere. You have this expectation in your personal life of how easy it is to order something, have it delivered to your house, collaborate, you know, see your family and friends really quickly and easily. And then you try to translate that into your business life. It's not always as seamless. It's 10 tools. It's three tools. This doesn't work. I need four signatures. I can't track anyone down. There's nine different versions of something. And you feel like, wow, why isn't it as easy as it is buying a book on Amazon or ordering Uber Eats or you know whatever it might be? So that consumer expectation, I don't think, is going to go away anytime soon in B2B. Hi there, this is David Knorr. Welcome to the third season of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm so excited after years of research and interviews and due diligence on this topic to finally be able to publish Curvebenders this year. It'll be my 11th book as a follow-on to Relationship Economics and Co-Create. Curvebenders, in essence, are your strategic relationships that enable your non-linear growth in the future. Our research points to 15 forces that we believe will dramatically impact the future of how you'll work, how you'll live, how you'll play, and how you'll give. The global pandemic is just one example. So how will you remain relevant if more disruption will come at us more often with potentially far greater impact? In each episode, I want to share with you insights, great ideas from guests I've invited to join us, as well as practical ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, your behaviors, and most importantly, what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships. I call those relationships your curve benders. So let's get started. Hi, everybody. Noor here. I want to let you know that we've launched a brand new website, including a brand new blog, a resource section with links to all the previous podcast episodes, Inc. and Forbes articles, and a new intimate community called the Noor Forum. It's a place where like-minded professionals are gathering to learn, share, and grow through insights about strategic relationships, visual storytelling, and nonlinear growth. This is also where you'll find the show notes, articles, references to position papers by my podcast guests. For example, I hosted David Burkus on a live stream, and we've put a link to that video there. So join us at norgroup.com slash forum. That's N-O-U-R group, norgroup.com slash forum. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is someone, I'm a customer, I'm an admirer from a distance, we're colleagues in some ways. Tiffany Bova is the global chief growth evangelist at Salesforce. Welcome. Thank you for having me, David. I'm thrilled to be here. It is great to have you. For those that may not know as much about you, can you briefly just talk about your background, where you've been and what you've done? Oh boy, that's a loaded question. <laughs> 
So I'd say I started out my career selling technology many, many years ago, almost 25 years ago. And I've been in sales, marketing, and customer service for startups, midsize, and Fortune 500 companies for you know, almost that entirety of that time. I spent 10 years as a research fellow at Gartner. So I was, which is the industry's largest analyst and consulting firm for tech companies, advising some of the largest brands on how to go to market and sell better and engage with customers better. And now most recently, the last five years I've been with Salesforce. So it's been an amazing ride, but always very close to technology and always very close to sales service and marketing. I don't know what a chief growth evangelist does. What's a typical, if there's such a thing, day in your life at Salesforce? It's pretty consistent, actually. It is all about you know working with and learning from customers who are successfully making the transition from a digital standpoint and what they've, especially over the last 12 months as everything has radically changed to work from anywhere, watching what those trends are and then being able to sort of aggregate them and synthesize them into messaging and communication that I can then share back out to the market, either with individual customers or on, you know, podcasts like this, or, you know, normally, you know, on stage more broadly on a global basis. What attracted you? I mean, Gardner's got a great reputation. What attracted you to Salesforce to do this role? So, you know, I'd say this, look, you know, I, in my twenties, it was kind of, what do I want to do for a living in my thirties? It was really the grind of how do I learn more? How do I do more? How do I get more responsibility? How do I make more money? And I think I really just burnt out. And so at the end of my thirties, I actually joined Gartner kind of the week of my 40th birthday and said, you know, I want to kind of take a break and, and actually try my hand at advising, which meant I had to exercise completely different muscles, you know, being a contributing leader who was responsible for P&L and revenue is very different than advising leaders who do those things. So it took me a couple of years to learn how to do that and do that well and do that at scale on a, on really a global basis. And I felt like I had achieved it, you know, when I reached research fellow, which is kind of the highest place I could go from a Gartner perspective, from a research perspective. And so at my fifties, it was really, how do I stop consuming and start figuring out how can I contribute back to an industry that's been so good to me? And Salesforce was a natural place for me to do that. If for any of you listening who have attended a Dreamforce event for, for Salesforce, it's our annual customer conference that we normally do in person. We get about 150,000 people that come into San Francisco. That was the only tech conference trade show that I'd ever been at where I left feeling like I wanted to be a better human being. And so when I realized that I was sort of in that pivot in my career from consumption to contribution, it was a natural place for me to want to go where I could start to do and spend time on the give back side, not just the work side. And so it's been a, an amazing, amazing five years for me coming up in a couple of weeks again. Yeah. Congrats on the intentionality of that journey. I still meet a lot of executives who are doing soul searching. I'm not convinced they're, they know who they are or what really makes them happy. So I love Well, I'll tell profession. you, it was an accident. So there was no plan. It kind of <laughs> accidentally happened that way, you know, and when people ask me that question and then make a comment similar to what you just said, I say, you just have to really trust the process. Maybe you don't know where it's going to take you. I never thought I would be an academic for a decade, really. Then I never thought I'd be an author of a best-selling book. And then I never thought I'd work here. I mean, you know what I'm saying? So you just kind of have to trust the process. But when I look back, that's kind of how those chunks of my career mapped out. Was there an impetus at each of those kind of, you know, flexion points, or I call them refraction points where you felt like you reached, you know, reached a plateau or you'd learn as much as you could? Or what, what, was there some trigger that, or catalyst that nudged you to move? 
So in my 30s, it was, I sort of quickly said it, but it was kind of, how do I do more, learn more, get more responsibility, make more money? It was very focused on that for me. And as an individual seller, you have the ability to make more money if you sell more stuff. So can I go somewhere where I can sell more stuff, right? And make more commission and make more money. And then it became, well, kind of good at this. Maybe I might want to manage people. And so do I want a team, a bigger team, a bigger team, more responsibility? And so about every 18 months in my 30s, I actually changed jobs. And this was now almost 20 years ago. And so I tell you that I don't know if I would make that a blanket recommendation for everybody, but I went to my employers and said, hey, listen, you know, I I love what I'm doing. I love working here, but I'd like more. I'd like more responsibility. Can you share with me sort of a career path? I didn't use these words back then. I probably wasn't as eloquent, but you know, what's sort of a career path for me? And they'd say, Hey, you know, let, let us think about it. Let's talk about it. And they were smaller, mid-sized businesses. You know, maybe one of them was 20 million. One of them was 150 million. What, you know, they, they were big, but they weren't, you know, billion dollar fortune 500 brands. And so, you know, I'd give them 60 or 90 days and I'd come back and, you know, set up a meeting and say, you know, I'd love to hear what you kind of came up with. And I almost always heard, we love you working here. We don't really have anything at this moment, but we don't want to lose you. So if you could just hang on for a little bit longer, we'll figure it out. And that was sort of that inflection point, if you will. Do I stay and wait for them to find a position for me? Or do I go and find the position and create that opportunity on my own? And each time I made the decision to make that opportunity on my own. And so every time I left, I got more responsibility. I had the opportunity to make a little bit more money. I learned a lot more. And so that was my path of of doing that. And then that's why at the end of that run of 10 years, I was tired because I was just taking on more and more and more and more sort of in that consumption mode. And so getting off that Ferris wheel, if you like to say, you know, of that grind of just sort of 24 seven and PL responsibility was to go to Gartner and, and figure out how can I just take a breath? No one reports to me and really figure out how do I start to formulate a lot of the things I'd learned along the way. Switch gears and talk about growth IQ. So obviously a, a Wall Street Journal bestselling book. You talk a lot about getting smarter about choices that are going to make or break your business. What were the big aha moments for you in your research and writing that book? Well, you know, it goes back to what we were just talking about, you know, over the sort of, you know, 10 or 12 years that I had been a practicing seller, sales leader, and then I picked up marketing and then I picked up customer service. And I was actually very, very early in what we called sort of the internet or the World Wide web. I was a Loquas beta client in 2000, constant contacts in 2001. I was selling recurring revenue and selling remotely, selling via chat. We were about $120 million infrastructure as a service and application service provider back in the day. And I was sort of groundbreaking, not realizing it on a lot of the models that we see here today. And when I left that and went into Gartner and the analyst community, it gave me this opportunity over the course of 10 years, I had 5,000 conversations with customers of all sizes, a startup with five people, like I want to hire my first salesperson to one of the largest tech companies in the world where I have 35,000 salespeople. How do we you know, reskill them? And, and in the same hour, I would have that conversation. So cross the gamut. And what I started to find were these patterns and consistencies, regardless of size, region, industry, sector, that people were struggling with the same set of challenges. Growth is getting harder. I may be trying to recover from a growth stall. 
competition is getting more fierce. What do I do? And so I really took the opportunity to sort of distill everything I'd learned over my practicing days and academic days. And that landed me at the 10 Paths to Growth, which was ultimately Growth IQ. I've always said I learn as much, if not more, about my own books after they're published because people read they in a respectful way, you know, push back on some of the ideas that makes you rethink parts of it. Were there some things you learned that either reinforced ideas in the book or others that refuted? So there's one sentence in the book that I went back to my publisher and wish I could have changed. One, literally one sentence. I mean, you know, there are other things I'll share, obviously, but the one sentence was I, and there was a study done by Bain and company that said, uh, you know, some 88, high 80%, low 90% deciding, depending on size of your company. But the number one reason companies were not able to deliver consistent and repeatable growth was internal inertia. So it was things that was happening within their four walls. So it was sort of the opening of the book. And then right after I said that, I said, unless there's a black swan event. So here we are. If we had a crystal ball, that would have been right. Brilliant. We're in the middle of it. So I'm like, I, you know, I immediately reached out to the portfolio and I said, like, can we remove that line? You know, so, you know, cause here we are in the middle of the black swan event and the book is equally as relevant today. What I have heard is people will ask which of those paths are more relevant today because of the pandemic than they might have been pre pandemic. Because let me make one thing clear. If you happen to read the book or you've already read the book, I never claim that these are 10 brand new ideas you've never heard of before. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The book is a modernization of the ways in which companies have grown since the beginning of time, right? Sell more, sell better, sell into new markets, you know, invest in new things, focus on the customer, whatever it might be. It was my modern twist of adding social, mobile, cloud, big data, virtual reality, augmented reality, all the things we have at our disposal now that weren't around in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s when a lot of these big management disciplines were birthed, if you will. Mm. So they're relevant, thankfully, still today. It's just the key is which ones you focus on because where you are as a company is unique to you. And so I did not try to distill it down to everybody does it this way and it will work. It is you have to do a little bit of work on your own. So I'd say that what pushback I did get was people were looking for more of that. How do I actually execute against this? Or how do I action what you've just told me? And I had tried to put in something I called the Monday morning huddle into the book, but I ran out of space. But that Monday morning huddle was sort of, okay, if you're a leader and you're reading this, grab your team together, sit around the table and talk about it in this way, like go through this exercise. And I just didn't have the ability to put it in the book. So I did it as an ebook kind of after the fact. But that's the one thing I'd say I've heard pretty consistently is I loved what you said. I get a little pushback if people miss the subtlety that I claim that it's something brand new. But outside of that, it's been really, really well received, thankfully. Let's talk about the last year or so. Are there some beyond the obvious, the working from anywhere, trends that you've observed, Tiffany, that you believe will fundamentally stay with us in the enterprise B2B selling space after the pandemic? I would say this. I have not been a fan of the distinction between B2B and B2C for a long time, probably almost a decade. I realize that there are products that are very specifically sold for B2B versus B2C. But for me now, it's kind of B2E, business to everything, everyone, and every experience. And what has changed dramatically during the last 12 months is all of us have become super consumers in our day lives while balancing our personal and professional experiences. And so now those have bled together even more so than when I was saying this 10 years ago, meaning 
you know, you now are working from anywhere, you have this expectation in your personal life of how easy it is to order something, have it delivered to your house, collaborate, you know, see your family and friends really quickly and easily. And then you try to translate that into your business life. It's not always as seamless. It's 10 tools. It's three tools. This doesn't work. I need four signatures. I can't track anyone down. There's nine different versions of something. And you feel like, wow, why isn't it as easy as it is buying a book on Amazon or ordering Uber Eats or you know whatever it might be? So that consumer expectation, I don't think is going to go away anytime soon in B2B. And so that requires an even greater focus for those brands listening that tend to focus to business buyers to remember on the other end of that Zoom call or email or phone call is a consumer whose expectations are now being set and experiences are now being set by other industries that may have nothing to do with you. And so you have to remember your last best experience as a consumer and will your customers feel like they have that with you? Let's talk about talent. Do you believe it is the pandemic has made attracting, retaining, developing exceptional talent more challenging or easier? So I, you know, I'd say this, I, I love this question because, you know, there was a hypothesis I came up with pre-pandemic. I would, as I was giving a keynote, I would say, I don't think it's a coincidence that Salesforce is one of the best places to work globally. And I think in 15, 16, 17 countries, we're number one. We're definitely in the top five, pretty much everywhere. We're one of the most innovative companies in the world and we're the fastest growing enterprise software company. All those titles given by other people, not us. I don't think there's a coincidence that those three things happen. So I went to our CMO, Stephanie Buscemi, who had just recently has stepped down and sort of ran this buyer. And I said, I want to prove this hypothesis out. And so we did a research project with Forbes and came back with the power of employee experience driving customer experience. And we found that those companies that have those two things really tightly aligned grow 1.8x faster. And so for me, it was you know, the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. So how do you get employees to love their job? Well, do they have what they need? Do they have the right skills? Are you training them? Are you retraining them for what is needed for today? So talent is this competitive weapon and happy employees and employee engagement means something very different today than it did at the beginning of 2020. Experience is different. It isn't the foosball table and do you get meals, right? It's Do I feel connected? Do I have everything I need to work from anywhere? So I feel like talent will need to make investments in their own personal development, but companies need to make sure that they are always giving their people the opportunity to have new opportunity, but also to continue to reskill, invest in themselves while at the same time, obviously they make sure that work is uh, their, you know, employees are safe and healthy and, and able to do their job. So It's talent is a, obviously a a topic that many people talk about and have talked about for a long time, but attracting, maintaining, retaining, and, you know, inspiring and enabling is very different than it was. So you have to, you have to keep track on, on what your employees actually want and need from you going forward. Why do you believe so many organizations are so bad at either the employee or the customer experience? Some of the employee experience is, I'm going to go back to my advising days. It was surprising to me to see how many technology companies would just say, look, our technology is really good. (laughs) What else do you want? What else else do you you want? Right. And they were technology led. They were product led. They weren't customer led. They were product led. Here's our product. 
doesn't matter. Now you have the outliers, right? Where you have a Steve Jobs will say, I never had a customer focus group. I know what they want. They don't know what they want yet. Okay. That's one in a billion, <laughs> right? You got an Elon Musk, got, you know, Steve Jobs or a Mark Benioff or someone like that. Okay. Right. But for the mean, it's really good to understand, you know, what your employees actually want from you. And you have to do that by actually asking the question. And so Tom Peters, one of my favorite people who wrote the book In Search of Excellence, talks about it all the time, right? Managing by wandering around. So as a leader, now can you virtually wander around and talk to your employees, hear what they want, but not just ask and listen, but then action it and come back and say, because of what you said, we did this different. And so that empowers people to say, wow, you know, I work here. They care about what I have to say. They may not always agree. They may not always do what I think, but at least they listen and value what I have to say and they care enough to come back. On the customer experience side, it's very similar, right? Once again, I'm product led, I'm not customer led. And so I don't care what my customers want, you know, and the fastest way for me to describe what that means is I use call centers as an example. If you're an executive who views your call center as a cost center, then you are not customer led. Because if you say, okay, we get a hundred calls, we have 10 people. It means you can stay on the phone for three minutes. If you stay on the phone longer than three minutes, you're going to get dinged because that's a cost center. That's a PL driven decision versus hold on. What if our customers need to talk to us for seven or eight minutes? Why are we dinging the employee? Because the customer has a problem we need to solve. If you flip that on the other side of the coin and view customer service as a revenue generating engine, as one that delivers and delights customers, make sure they're successful using whatever it is you're selling, you know, that they're happy and all of those things. Now, all of a sudden, that's a very different approach. And so a lot of it has to do with metrics, what you're managed against, compensation, bonuses, right? That drives behavior. And so those two things solely focused on what you sell not how you sell it, how your customers feel and how you empower your employees is a recipe for limited growth. (laughs) You've met, you've worked with a lot of seasoned folks. Are there one or two that you believe have had a profound impact on not just what you've accomplished, but who you've become? Oh, so many. You know, one of the things that I absolutely love about my job over the last 15 years, both at Salesforce and Gartner, is I've had the pleasure of traveling around the world. So in 2019, I flew literally almost 370,000 miles. So on six continents, I gave a hundred keynotes somewhere in the world. Every time I'm backstage in the green room, I meet these amazing other people who are on stage. I meet these executives who are, you know, changing all kinds of things, you know, from a societal standpoint or business standpoint, doing really innovative things. And those conversations just like inspire me every day to do that 375,000 miles. Of course, last year in 2020, I didn't fly that much. I think, you know, I made it back into the US from Sydney kind of March 12th. I got in right before, you know, everything shut down and I'd already flown, you know, 60,000 miles. And so, you know, in 2020, I did probably twice as many engagements virtually and I really missed that connection and inspiration of conversation of sharing thoughts and views and, Hey, I'm thinking about what do you think or listening to what they say? And it helped shape what I did. And my fly time was my thinking time. And, you know, so it's been really, that's been the most challenging for me is, is, you know, I can't name one, two or three people. It's the hundreds that I've met backstage on the road in an admiral's club, sitting next to you on an airplane. It's these random serendipitous conversations that inspire me every day to continue to learn and do what I do. And so 
you know, that's the way I answer that without, you know, just nailing down two or three individuals. I think it's, for me, it's been a village that has inspired me. Uh, You and I both travel extensively, you know, some of that travel time, some of that commute time sitting back of a car was great time to think. How are you making time to think and to build on that? How are you learning and growing? What's working really well for you to make sure your ideas, your lens, your perspective remains fresh? Yeah. You know, as I was saying, you know, you nailed it. It was my fly time was my think time. I actually wrote Growth IQ on an airplane, on many airplanes, in many lounges of airports and hotels. And I would print out the pages and I would hand do it uninterrupted on airplanes. So, you know, how do I replicate that? So, you know, initially, first the lockdown happened, we could kind of go outside and I'm in Los Angeles, California, we could kind of hike. And so I would go and hike, you know, an hour a day and walk or go exercise so that I could get out. And that would be my think time. And then, you know, with the ever never ending lockdowns we've had in Southern California, I think we just got out of one that started literally before Thanksgiving. And we just got out of it like a week ago that the trails would close down. And so then it was sort of walking around the neighborhood. It definitely became a lot less inspiring. And I'd say that it's difficult for me to try to recreate this space I get when I'm on the road. The other day I was actually joking that I was going to grab my suitcase and go for a walk around the block. You know, maybe that would (laughs) make me feel. Bring back some of those airport. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, you know, lose my luggage for a moment, you know, that kind of stuff. Like get in the back of a black car and say, just drive me to Ralph's or so. I don't know, but (laughs) it has been challenging. And look, I think we've all been struggling with how to stay connected I am a people person. I'm an extrovert. I enjoy the connection. I enjoy the conversation. I enjoy learning and all of those things. So even the alone time is not what I miss most that I can recreate because I can recreate that. It's that inspiration that happens at the people level that is difficult for me to get over a Zoom call. So now I'm really curious about your aspirations other than getting back on an airplane and (laughs) losing luggage and going from a port of call to another one. What are you most looking forward to on the other side of this pandemic? You know, it's been amazing to watch how quickly so many companies have pivoted their businesses and remained resilient during this time. It's inspiring to watch people who have said we've had to take you know, a small business of 10 people and everyone's working anywhere. And how do we do that really quickly? Or all of a sudden our call centers or restaurants, you know, we weren't doing delivery. We're doing delivery. We weren't doing this, you know, our supply chains really hit early and watching that. And so, you know, I'm excited to get back out and hear how people have actually survived and thrived during this time what decisions they made that worked, what decisions they made that didn't work. And I get that when I do, you know, customer calls. And obviously I probably did 300 last year, if not a little bit more of calls with customers. So I hear that on a very focused effort, but I want to hear it at scale. So I'm really looking forward to getting back and hearing the the sort of battle scars and the lessons learned during this time, because number one, back to one of your earlier questions, how has Growth IQ actually worked in action? And not necessarily the book itself, but those levers of growth. What worked better? What didn't work? How did it slightly shift? That's what I'm super excited to to get back out and, and learn and listen and hear. So you've been delightful. Thank you for your insights for our audience. You've been listening to Tiffany Bova, Global Customer Growth and Innovation Evangelist at Salesforce. Tiffany, what's the best way for our audience to learn more about you, your work, and get in touch? 
So I'm really active on social. So follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'm at Tiffany underscore Bova and it's Tiffany with an I at the end and, you know, Instagram and Facebook and everywhere else. And so, and I've got a podcast called What's Next with Tiffany Bova and obviously the book Growth IQ. Thank you for being our guest on the Curve Vendors podcast. Thank you for having me. By the way, three quick points, new season and a renewed commitment to our digital footprint, blog, newsletter, social media. We turn the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so you can find those in our completely revamped new blog forthcoming at norgroup.com slash blog. Number two, we're completely revamping our newsletter to make them even more practical and relevant with both a free and a premium version. Check it out at norgroup.com slash newsletter. Lastly, we want to bring the content from these episodes to life. So whether it's a Twitter chat with a guest or live streaming through our Facebook and YouTube channels, or even more recently, a Clubhouse audio conversation, check out our various social media channels with the hashtag CurveBenders for the latest update. What a fabulous conversation with Tiffany Bova. Again, I've, I'm a Salesforce customer. I've been a, a, a big fan of hers and her writing and her thinking. And uh, you, could, you could hear from her tone, passionate, driven, uh, very focused on uh, both understanding kind of trends of what's happening, more importantly, translating those into uh, actionable insights for a client. So this is the NOR summary notes, uh, three minutes or less, kind of take action, summarize the key ideas from this episode, and hopefully you'll go do something with. Uh, I got to tell you, I've got teenagers, and we're talking about their career journey, and I know she said there's no plan, but I love her framework, right? So 20s, just figure out what is it that you want to do. 30s, bit of a grind, but do more, learn more, earn more. 40s, kind of be that advisor. 50s really learn how to uh, translate those insights into dramatically uh, giving and improving conditions of others. And uh, you could tell she's got a great background from her uh, gardener to, and what a cool job at Salesforce, right? Imagine traveling globally and uh, really engaging as diverse of a client base that she does. Uh, she is very active on social, so I would highly, highly recommend follow her on LinkedIn and Twitter. And uh, she's exactly right. Growth IQ, um, and and she said it didn't you know have any earth shattering brand new. It was just here's ten ways to grow, and the growth you seek isn't going to come from any of them. It's going to come from a combination of. So are you doing, are you pulling some of these levers? Are you doing some of the things that are going to help you grow your business? Love, love. And it's amazing. We think a lot of like in this front, the whole conversation around uh, really, you know, individual consumers and consumer behaviors and consumer trends coming into the business world. So if I can order something from an Amazon and get a delivery you know, in the morning, get a delivery in the afternoon, what do you mean it's going to take you? three weeks to deliver something on the B2B side. So it really is business to everything and everyone and everywhere, right? I also really, really appreciated her comment about the power of the employee experience. And unequivocally, I can see that 1.8x faster growth in companies who are very intentional about creating an environment where, where people are passionate about what they do. 
and the customers they serve and the extent to which they go to to get things done. So are you in a position to attract and develop and really enable and empower passionate employees to make a fundamental difference? Don't forget, uh, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So join us in the NOR forum for more details. And I'm also hosting Tiffany on a live stream through our YouTube and Facebook channels on Tuesday, February 23rd. So I hope you'll check out our YouTube or Facebook channels and come join us for a live video stream with Tiffany Bova, February 23rd at 1 p.m., 1 p.m. Eastern. I'm so grateful for all of our listeners on the Curve Vendors podcast. I'd love to hear from you with ideas, with suggestions, with guests you'd love to hear from at this intersection of future of work, strategic relationships, and nonlinear growth. You can simply email podcast at norgroup.com or follow us on various social media channels where I use the hashtag Curve Vendors to keep you posted on our latest progress.